0: What I would like to do is just run through a few things. Um, I have a couple pieces of liturgy that I wanna I wanna share slash do, but it's hard to really do that all together. Um, and then I wanna talk about something like Earth Day and what Noah and the flood has to do with Easter and resurrection. Um And then we'll have some open conversation. And just like last week, if you're not able to stick around for it or you're not really interested in that part, no harm, no foul, nobody's gonna hold it against you if you log off. Um, But I am always interested in people's thoughts. And I think the best part of the content last week for me was what happened after I got done talking. Um, I I think that's where a lot of the thoughts really came together. So I'm looking forward to that, and there is one specific thing that I don't have written into my content that I do want to do after, so that's kind of like the, uh, the post-show, but we'll, we'll let everybody talk um, however, however they would like. So I want to begin with what's called a litany for the church and for the world. And a litany is just a prayer. And this actually comes out of um, the book of worship. So the United Methodist book of worship, it's this this big old book. Um, But this is a prayer that we've used a lot in the past. And uh, so some of you might recognize it. And there is a part that says response. Um, You don't have to all in unison unmute your mics and uh respond corporately but if you would like to from wherever you're sitting or wherever you're standing some of you are standing um you can go ahead and and participate in that so this is the litany for the church and for the world let us pray for the church and for the world god of all creation Grant that all who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Lord, in your mercy and love, hear our prayer. Guide the people of this land and of all nations in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Give us all reverence for the earth as your own creation, that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Bless all whose lives are closely linked in intimate connection with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as Christ loves us. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles, and bring them the joy of your salvation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, help us to be your people, to respond to your grace, to trust you with our lives and our world, and to share in your eternal kingdom on earth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Hopefully you all were able to follow with that in some way, shape, or form. Um, And I hope you were able to catch some nuances in that prayer that speak to not only our identity and who we are, but the kind of world that we should be creating, the kind of world that we should be living in. And um, if we were together in the barn this week, uh, we would be doing um, what I call our triad of hymns. And there are three very particular hymns that all kind of run together uh, that speak to this whole idea that we're talking about. And that would be all creatures of our God and King for the beauty of the earth and this is our father's world um and and i just want to bring up the lyrics of one of those for you and uh if you if you want to go ahead and sing it while while you're sitting wherever you're sitting um absolutely go ahead and do that Um, but I just I just want us to kind of sit and reflect on these words because especially this one. So this is um, oops, this is the wrong one. That's for the beauty of the earth. Also, really good. But uh, this one, this is my father's world. But so I'm just gonna read through this almost like we're reading a poem. Again, if you wanna if you wanna sing it from wherever you are, absolutely go ahead. Um, I am not confident enough in my vocal ability to sing this into a not so great microphone uh, while all of you are sitting there staring at me so um, i'm going to read it like a poem but i hope by doing this it's going to uh, bring out some of the emphasis of the the words to us so this is my father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. This is my father's world, oh, let me never forget. That though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The story is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. The connection between um, ecology and Jesus's work and the identity of uh, the Jewish people and, and the church that came out of that, that's a profound connection, especially to make in the season of Easter. Um, so that's kind of where I want to, to take us today and i also wanted to we're going to do a quick meditation that i think's important and it's also challenging but before we do that i wanted to share um a piece of prose that we first shared in this barn maybe in like late september so this was one of the first things that we did uh, in this space and so i'll i'll read this i know for some of you you've you've found this very meaningful and um, this is something that's been important in my life, but moving from capturing what is happening with Jesus, what, what is God doing in the world that includes us, and then what does that mean for how we live as people? Um, this, this seems to be something that is, that is really important. So this is a, a quote that comes from, um, I'm not going to tell you who the author is because then you'll all make fun of me. Which means it's Wendell Berry. So what do you want to do with your life? I hope to die in a world that I was glad to live in, which means I will either exist like a tree or like fire. We will try to live in the world by burning and destroying it or by learning to produce life where we are, firmly rooting ourselves in the soil, taking only what we need and seeing to the preservation and enrichment of that which is around us. May you grow like a tree, not like a fire. I wanna invite us into a space of um, meditation. And so if you're one where you do want to close your eyes and uh, actually get into a prayerful state and you don't want the camera on while you do that, feel free to turn off your camera. Feel free to turn off your microphone. Um, I will have some words on the screen if you need something to focus on. So however you want to, however you want to do this is up to you. I'll go ahead and guide us through this meditation. And then uh, when we're done, we'll get into some text, okay? So just go ahead and begin by taking some deep breaths and notice the space around you do you hear any ambient sounds are there any particular smells are there other noises maybe they're distracting go ahead and pay attention to them for a second and in whatever state you're comfortable if you're sitting If your eyes are closed, if your eyes are open, it doesn't matter. But I want you to begin by seeing yourself in front of you. Imagine whether you're looking in a mirror or or you're just imagining the wholeness of your body standing right in front of you right now. I want you to speak these words to yourself. And it can often be hard to speak good things to ourselves. We usually want to be hard on ourselves and challenge ourselves, but do the hard thing of speaking goodness and wholeness and prayer to yourself. You have permission to do that. And so as you imaginatively look at yourself in front of you, say to yourself, may I be whole, May I be safe, may I have joy, and may I have peace. Do that again. May I be whole, may I be safe, may I have joy, and may I have peace. Now I want you to. Imagine in front of you or next to you someone or a group of people that you love. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's someone who's no longer with us. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody you just met and you felt an innate joy at their presence. I want you to now picture that person in front of you. I want you to say these words to them. May you be whole, may you be safe, may you have joy and may you have peace. When you're ready, we'll do that again. For somebody that you love, may you be whole, may you be safe, you have joy you have peace now I want you to I want to invite you into a more difficult space and this one involves us speaking these things to someone we might consider an enemy we have to remember Jesus does not say that we need to like our enemies he does say that we have to love them We should pray for them. This is difficult. And if this part of the meditation takes you into a place of too much difficulty or trauma, please don't do it. Only go as far as you are able to go, but I do invite you into the space of vulnerability. If it's only because it's difficult, resist the temptation to run from what can be challenging. And remember, no part of this is you making sure everything goes perfectly for that person no part of this is you having to cost yourself something for that person or that group Who's somebody you hate who's somebody who takes up a lot of negative headspace who's somebody who's like it's like a, a tape playing in your head that you just can't get rid of and it's caused detriment to your life I want you to now imagine that that person in front of you and speak these words to them, even if they're not completely from you, even if it's just with the understanding that God speaks these words to those people, whether or not we like them. That's what we can do to love our enemies, is pass on the peace and the blessing that they have just by being a human being. The same reason that you can speak these four lines to yourself, is the same reason that you can speak them to this person, because God is with them too. So imagining those people, that person, that group, say to them, may you be whole, may you be safe, may you have joy, may you have peace. can wish these things on anybody no matter what they've done no matter what they have yet to do it doesn't mean that what they did was right it doesn't mean that we can't still pursue justice and reconciliation but we can wish these things to them so I invite you to say it again may you be whole may you be safe may you have joy and may you have peace now Let's take this even further, because as we've seen in the Book of Acts, this this work, it just keeps transcending and including, transcending and including to the ends of the earth. And so now I want you to, in whatever way you can, imagine the whole earth, the whole cosmos, all people and all things, conglomerated together. And I want you to speak these words to every single thing that exists, and say, "May you be whole." May you be safe, may you have joy, and may you have peace. See yourself as part of the broader connection that is our common life, and our common journey together in this world. I'll say that one more time. May you be whole, may you be safe, may you have joy, and may you have peace peace when you're ready go ahead and transition out of that meditative and prayerful space take time if you need to take some breaths if you need to and let's get into our contents um If anybody has any thoughts or questions or anything, uh, you can go ahead and send me messages. You can send me messages privately on here if you don't want everyone to see it. Um, But what I would encourage you to do while I go, uh, we've kind of found that it's easier for me to just kind of give all the content, not try to quiz and test you all on different texts and things. Um, just give all the content and then have conversation, uh, following that. Just if a thought came up or you had a question on something specific, um, or, you know, your thoughts on what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? So I am going to, uh, kind of get moving with this. So feel free to chat, send me a chat. I probably won't get to it till, uh, I, I get through this. So I've got a, I've got some notes that I want to share. And then, um, (laughs) but I encourage you, write things down as I go, okay? And that way we have some things to go back to. So this is called Something Like Earth Day, Noah, the Flood, and Resurrection. Uh, So hopefully that title will make sense to you by the end of this. And here's the deal. I do not, I'm just going to set some standards here. I do not think that we should care for the earth or participate with creation because the Bible says so. Um, that if the Bible didn't say anything about it, then we just wouldn't do it. I I don't think that's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is most of us, at least from what I know about all of you who are on, um, most of us get this. Most of us understand this, follow with this. Um, what I think is important is then to go, so how do we interact with the earth? And why should we do it? And I think the Bible gives us those answers, okay? So I don't think the Bible is the, the reason why we go, oh, I never thought of it before, but we should, we should act appropriately with ecology. No, I, what I think we can do is go, what does the Bible say about it? And how can that help inform how and why we in, should interact? this way this is this is about helping to nurture the identity um so hopefully that makes sense but we're going to begin this with uh noah and the flood which is something i don't think i've ever uh given content on since i've been here um but it's super interesting so i know i've alluded to it a lot but i always say this before we begin anything in the first 11 chapters of genesis Um, I do not think that Genesis one through 11 is a science textbook. So if you're coming at it with that, that hat on, take that hat off. Uh, Pretty much about any story in the ancient world, they weren't sitting around going like, listen, we got to write down the exact science of how this happens because people 2,000 years from now, 3,000 years from now in America are going to be really concerned about that. They weren't having that conversation. What they're trying to do is give what's called cosmology, which is how do we understand what this whole thing is? And they would do that through an origin story. All right, so as we're reading this, we're not asking the question, how did this happen? We're asking the question, why? Why did this happen? That's what's going to clue us into what's meaningful for us today. All right. Now, as Easter is continuing, so we've kind of talked about Easter is a season, not just one day. I don't think that we can talk about Easter without talking about Noah and the flood. And we can't look at Noah and the flood without seeing it within the context of Genesis as a whole. Remember, Genesis is a story. It's a single narrative. From beginning to end, it wants you to understand what's happening in this specific part in light of what's already happened. Okay? So, we're going to dive in to Genesis 6 through 8 with a little bit in chapter 9. If this stuff really bores you, go ahead and check out for like 10 minutes. But we're going to dig into the text. All right. So, first, I have a series of questions, and I hope to help you answer those questions for yourself. So the first one is, why did the flood happen? I want you to think about that. Why did the flood happen? Again, you got that science hat on? Take it off. It's not helpful right now. And I'm not saying that science is bad. I actually find it really important in the conversation of whatever we do with faith. Um, But remember, this is about... The why, not the how. So here we go. So this is Genesis 6, verse 5 through 7. And if you have a Bible at home with you, feel free to follow along in that. Um, But I've tried to put the text up on the screen as well. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we're starting out on a real positive note. Um, so why did the flood happen? Well, according to these verses, something went wrong. And it went so wrong that Adonai, so anywhere you see Lord like that in the Hebrew Bible, um, you'll often hear me say Adonai instead. It's a sign of respect. Um, So Adonai wants to blot out all of it, and he's sorry that he made any of it at all. Um, But we're clued into some specific details, and and it has to do with humans. So humans are responsible here in some way. And uh, one way we could put it is, if remember, we're reading this in context. Genesis 1 and 2 is all about humans having this responsibility to be caretakers of the earth, to guide the earth, to direct it. Here, we find out the directors have directed in the wrong direction. And things have gone astray. So if humans are responsible for guiding how this has gone, they've misguided it. And it's so bad now that, that God regrets it. All right. So that's, that's one reason why. Let's, uh, let's look a little bit further. So this is Genesis uh, 6 verses 11 through 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. What I want you to pay attention to here is first uh, this idea of corruption and the previous section of wickedness, it's paired with violence. Those are the indicators we're given for what has gone wrong and why it's been misguided. I think that's important. But what's also important about this section is that whatever humans have done has not just affected them. The whole earth is filled with violence. The earth didn't commit the violence. The humans did. We're told the humans are responsible, and yet its its effects involve everything. And, of course, we should assume this is the case because of what we read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that the effects ripple out and, and it continues to go on because there's an interdependence between all of these things. Okay. So that's kind of the picture being, being painted so far. All right. Next question. What is the flood meant to do? So we saw a couple uh, previews of the intention of the flood in those last two, but let's look at chapter six, verse 17. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth To destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. So just like the general summary is what's going on with the flood? What's it meant to do? It's supposed to erase everything, right? Particularly though, how will that happen? Water and death. And the inclusion of water This is where you got to start picking up on some details. Water is the medium by which all of this is going to happen. Is that random or is that about something specific? And this is where people want to go. Like we have no archeological evidence of a worldwide flood. Yeah. I don't care because the point is that water reverses what's going on with these humans and their violence and the corruption. That's the water has a, it's a main character in the narrative of this story. And I think that there is a reason why. And so water, taking over everything, reversing it back, erasing it, and that leading to the absence of life, what is this a picture of? And if you read like verses 18, 19, 20, right there, it's going to give you like list of creatures. And those are the same exact list that are given back in Genesis one. What is this a picture of? Creation is getting reversed. God is uncreating the world. That's fascinating. Particularly in Genesis 1, there's this Hebrew phrase used, tohu vavohu. And tohu vavohu means emptiness uh, and void, It's absence, it's chaos. It's like the antithesis of life. You see, through water, God is bringing Tohu Vavohu back. All right, let's keep going. What is the process of the flood? So, kind of picking up on this a little bit further, we're into Genesis 7, guys. We made it through an entire chapter. Everybody's saying amen right now, correct? All right. For, see, this is where I hate that I can't see you all and read you in the room because I have no clue how bored you are. All right, so Genesis seven verse four. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. So rain, water is going to cover the earth and it's going to blot out everything from the face of the ground. I think this part's important. Because that word "ground" is the Hebrew word "adamah," "adamah" sounds awfully a lot like "adam," or we might say "Adam," and "Adam" just means "out of the ground." And here we see that the ground is even getting blotted out. All right, so more of that connection between creation and humans, um, and. The other thing that I find interesting is that you start getting these references to numbers, right? So seven days from the time this conversation is happening, God's going to uncreate the world. I think that's that's an intentional use of, of numbers there. And then the 40 and the 40, that's all going to be really important as Judaism continues. Um, we move on to verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So we would read this one would be like, oh, why not just say it rained? Uh, because that's not what they understood happening. Let me show you a picture. Hopefully all of you can see this. This is a rendering of how the ancient world understood the earth, that you had um, this was the sky, right? You got your, your celestial bodies and then you had land and there's water underneath. And that's why like, it looks like water comes out of the ground, right? Cause there's water underneath and there's also water up above. And so what God does in their minds when the world gets created is God takes all that water and separates it and then brings forth the sky and the land. And so the flood, what's happening, it's not just raining in their minds. It's the waters collapsing together again. And the water is taking over the earth as it was before God created it. Okay? So that's what's going on with the water. And then we read this in verse 17 through 19. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The water swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The water swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole whole heaven were covered. All right, so going back to that picture, that's what they see happening with this, is it all collapses back into water. Um, Except what you see now is that uh, the earth is covered in water again, which again, that's tohu vavohu, so that's Genesis, what is that, Genesis 1 versus like 2, 3, 4. The world looks like that again, except you have one vessel floating and separated away from that. And that's important for what happens next. So the next question is, what was the result of the flood? So pay attention to what happens here. And I know that we are streaming through three really big chapters of Genesis right now, but um, I just want to give us the basic picture. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters gradually receded from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. All right. So that's a picture of the waters get separated again. When did that happen before? Genesis chapter 1. All right. Moving on to chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. The waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and saw that the face of the ground was drying. So the waters separate and dry ground appears. At this point, you should be going, oh, this is, this is a creation story. And uh, another thing that's going to be important in a minute, there's this image of a dove. In Genesis chapter 1, we get this uh, God's breath or spirit or wind is hovering over the waters, and then God speaks, and that's what makes all of this happen. Here, you have this dove, and the dove starts to become a representation of God's spirit or breath or wind. All right, so that's happening within this. Uh, And then notice uh, what happens towards the end of chapter 8. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That list, Genesis 1. So that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You should recognize that language. Be fruitful and multiply. That is the blessing given to the creatures of the earth back in Genesis 1. And then... That keeps going. Genesis 9, verse 1 God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The exact same thing that God told the first humans in Genesis chapter 1. What is going on in the book of Genesis dealing with the flood? I would say the basic way to understand it is that the flood. Is creation being reversed and then restarted? All right? That's the image that I think is going on. And then we have to ask why. Why why is God uncreating the world and then recreating it? And if you think back to what we read in chapter 6, God is trying to set all things right. This is another word you could use for this is justice. God's trying to set things right again. And at the end of this, we get this promise um, that He will never God will never recreate the world in this way again. Never will God destroy everything in order to recreate the, the world. Um, we get that promise. But the idea of recreating the world is still a huge, influential part of the text. God still is going to continually act to reaccomplish what's going on here. And so we might want to phrase this as, um, what's going on with the flood? This is about the healing of the world. Shalom, all things in their right place, universal flourishing, health, where all things are good again. That's the point of the flood. God reverses creation, uncreates to recreate to help make this happen. And so then you have to start looking. It start going through the Hebrew Bible. Where else do you see this? All right. Well, so Genesis chapter twelve. What is that? It's about setting all things right, but instead of a flood, now God's going to use a small group of people who's slowly going to grow and take this blessing out to the world. Or you get into Exodus. Israel leaves Egypt. They come to a body of water. The water separates and dry ground appears. What's going on there? Their liberation is an act of new creation. Um, Or you could look into the sacrificial system, which a lot of people want to go, oh, Jesus got rid of Leviticus because Jesus was the final sacrifice. You're trying to talk about the Passover lamb there. The sacrificial system in Leviticus is not primarily about atonement and getting rid of sin. That is about a way of reconnecting with God so that Israel will set all things right in the world. Okay, so Every every act of sacrifice is a movement towards new creation. Um, you see this with the prophets. It's what the prophets are pointing to. So the question that we then have is how does Jesus fit into this? If Jesus is a part of Israel, if this same story is the story that Jesus is a part of, how does Jesus fit into this? Because is Jesus' death and resurrection about just something else, or does it actually have something to do with this and however the story continues in the new testament whatever you want to do with it i think you have to see it through this lens of the same thing that's going on with the flood and so uh, lately since easter we've been kind of using this phrase that jesus's death overcomes death and launches a process so what does jesus's death do and what is that process How does Jesus overcome death, and what does this process look like? What's it about? And I think that's what we're going to—that's what we start getting into today. I would make a case that the primary effect of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection deals explicitly with creation. I would argue that the first Christians understood Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as that which brings this renewal of creation that God's been trying to do back since Genesis one and Genesis two. So I wanna give you just a couple examples. And then I hope that you can, anytime you read any biblical text, you can find this this narrative portrayed somehow within that. So uh, first would be this, this comes from the Gospel of Matthew. This is Jesus' baptism. Pay attention to the language of Jesus' baptism. So you can get an idea of uh, what the authors were trying to communicate to us, right? When Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. If you were to translate that back into Hebrew, you would get the Hebrew word tov, which means good. And so God speaks that something is good. There's water that gets separated. God tears open the heavens and acts through God's Spirit, hovering over the waters, descending like a dove. What is going on here with Jesus' baptism? It's a picture of creation. Jesus' baptism, the thing that starts his, all of his work, is a picture of new creation. How do you think the gospel writers want you to understand Jesus? This is is about the recreation of the world. Whatever Jesus is going to do, it's about this. And people want to go off on tangents trying to explain, like, why did Jesus get baptized? And how would that work? And those discussions are fine. Just make sure you place it within the very obvious thing that the text is trying to place it. Okay, so then from there, like, what's the kingdom of God about? Well, justice. Wholeness, all things being made right, salvation to the ends of the earth, which is a command from Genesis. Okay? Um, or you could look at Passover and how Jesus reinstitutes Passover and says that the liberation that, uh, that the Israelites experienced coming out of Egypt and Exodus is now for the whole world and not just people, the whole world. So Jesus' death is painted as doing something for all parts of creation. Or you could look at how uh, Jesus and the early Christians talk about how they're, they are the temple together when th- their corporate body is a new temple. Um, and that's important if you're interested in that just because the first temple is actually depicted as God's presence in the garden. So that's a connection. Um, or you get, you get lines like this from Jesus a lot. So this comes from Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, why is he talking about the renewal of all things? Why does the book of Acts paint what the, those first Christians are doing as the restoration of all things? Because it's part of this narrative. Like this is just how they understood all of this was happening, right? Um, now you also get this with Paul, the Apostle Paul. A lot of his writings and the writings that came from his identity um, Use the same thing. Like Philippians talks about the good work that is going to yet be completed. What's the good work? I would argue it's the renewal of creation. Um, Or you get this in Ephesians, which if you're looking for a good Ephesians or a good like Easter text about who is the church and what are we doing and what's our narrative, just read Ephesians 1. It's brilliant. But specifically this part. Uh, With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And first, I just love, I love that the way the early Christians articulated what God is doing in the world wasn't with like wrath and judgment and he's out to get you. It's, This is God's good pleasure. This work brings God pleasure. Um, But you get this weird phrase, to gather up all things. This line right here. And it could be a little bit startling, so I'll make it even more confusing. The word to gather up is my favorite Greek word, anikafaliosathai. So you all can practice saying that, anikafaliosathai. And uh, it is, it's a party in your mouth, but it actually means to recapitulate, retell, sum up, or make unity out of. And the way that Paul understands what's going on with Jesus is that he is retelling or recapitulating, or you could say renewing the story of the world, making unity out of it. And then you have to ask, and who is that for? Well, what is, what is Paul uh, include here all things. Interesting. Moving on. First uh, Corinthians fifteen is another great example. The whole chapter is basically about how you get new bodily life in a new world, and that world is here on earth. That's how Paul expresses what the story is about. You get references in Romans. I mean, it's seriously all over the place. And then we can't leave out the book of Revelation. How does Revelation end? Which I hate I hate that right now. I am one of the pastors preaching on a Sunday morning using the book of Revelation because I am seeing it all the time. All, all of these pastors are like, the end times is here. I'm sorry that I just used that Southern Redneck voice, but I can't help it. Uh, seriously, I just, I just used Revelation uh, during the coronavirus. Here we go. Um, But I don't think it's about that at all. And particularly, how does Revelation end? A new heaven and a new earth. That God's justice, God's putting all things right, ends with creation being renewed, all of it, and the experience continues here. Like, there's this image, I've heard a joke once about how a lot of Christians talk about, like, how their souls go up to heaven. And there's going to be this moment where... uh, they're, they're all like floating up, and meanwhile, God's coming down because God has said, I'm going to take up residence on earth, and they're going to pass each other on the way. And they're going to be like, wait, I thought we were, it's like, no, God said we're taking up residence here. It's about the renewal of creation. This is everything that Jesus was about, and this was everything that was going on in the entire Hebrew Bible. Um, so we see that. So, real quick, just for your viewing pleasure, what is the main arc of the story? And I hope this is a part of our, our lexicon at the farmhouse. A couple ways that you could frame it. Um, the story begins with wholeness, and then there's brokenness, and then there's restoration. You could frame it as the story begins with shalom, that, that peace, that universal flourishing, all things in the right place, holistic health. And then there's non-shalom, and then there's renewed shalom. Or you could frame it as there's goodness and then there's death and then there's liberation and justice. However, whatever way works for you, it doesn't matter to me, but there's like this three part process that we see unfolding in this story. And the flood is a part of that. And Abraham is a part of that. And Exodus is a part of that. And the prophets and Jesus and the early church, the whole thing, it's part of the same arc in this narrative. And I think the, way that we can put Easter within this is that Jesus' death reverses what's gone wrong in the world and launches a new a renewal of creation that's what's going on with Jesus' death and resurrection that, that's primarily how we should understand it and that includes you right but um, maybe, maybe I wish we could like put this up on the wall somewhere Jesus, as Messiah of Israel, catalyzes the mission of Israel to the whole world through the kingdom of God displayed in his life, teachings, and overcoming of death to launch a new creation. That's what's going on. And that's what we see beginning back in the flood, and it's the same thing God's up to through Jesus. I also think it's important. People talk about bodily resurrection, um, and they talk about incarnation. And I think both of those are fascinating because if God takes up flesh, right, if if the presence of God and the resurrected body is still of flesh, of bodies, that affirms creation. That affirms materiality. But whatever is happening with resurrection— I think it comes back to this all all things and so now we're going to interrupt this moment with tyler to take you to a great guy called john wesley and so i hope you enjoy these advertisements from the one and only john wesley all all the hardcore methodists were just like yes so let's start here salvation is not what it is frequently understood by that word it is a present thing God wants to give you both inward and outward health. And people say that we're not a church because our vision statement is to foster the health of our place. They just don't know they're John Wesley, you know what I'm saying? But then it keeps going. Follow with this now. Wesley's 1785 sermon on the new creation refused to limit God's ultimate redemptive purposes to sentient beings insisting that the very elements of our present universe will be present in the new creation, though they will be dramatically improved over current conditions. A lot of things we could talk about there. But one more, because John Wesley's quote should all come in threes. In his sermons, The New Creation and the General Deliverance, Wesley demonstrated his belief that God's ultimate purpose includes saving all of creation, not just humanity, and that humans should model their behavior in anticipation of the final new creation. That's what we're talking about with Easter. And that's what God was doing back at the flood. It all is part of the same story. Do we understand, like, do we understand that this is a story? It deals with all things. like uh, So there's a, an author that I've been influenced by that talks about uh, resurrection um, like, like this. This is just a fun, a fun quote to have. You and me and all of those people, even our enemies, the people who don't care, the people who don't get it, and the people we don't want to get it, the backwards, the forwards, the nobodies, the somebody's, the top, the bottom, and even those who don't think they need it, the poor and the elite, the good and the bad, the weak and the powerful, the prisoner and the oppressed, and the strange, every group, every color, every race, and everyone who doesn't fit into our categories, all who has breath. Who is resurrection for? All things, all of these folks. But then it doesn't end there. Buildings and roads and electricity and paint and clothing and reality television. Cars and villages and countries and businesses and farms and crops, ground, wind, fire, animals, plants, creatures, and everything that has the breath of life in it. But also metal and rocks and plastic and chemicals and water and food and grass and trees and mountains and every single molecule in all of creation because God is involved in that too. What is this story about? What's going on with resurrection? What what is Jesus' death launching? A renewal of all things. The very intention that God has had since the beginning. And I think often churches have, we we use this language several years ago on Easter that we try to domesticate Jesus. Like Jesus is like this lion and we try to cage the lion and turn it into a house cat by saying, no, Jesus' work is only about this. It's like, no, it's, all things the whole this is about everything and if we're going to be easter people we need to be easter people of everything and so i have just a couple thoughts what do we what does this mean for us a couple thoughts first we should have a preferential option for creation for everything all things When we talk about what we do, when we think about the decisions that we're going to make, um, the way we interact and move and have our being within creation, we should first and foremost consider the whole thing, all things, all of it. And we don't. And we need to continue to shift that mindset further and further and further. Uh, A lot of churches, especially Methodist churches, do really great work. With uh, creation care and ministries for ecology, and that's great. But it's not just a text, a checkbox. It's not just an uh, an offshoot ministry that we can do. A preferential option for creation should be built into the fabric of everything that we do. And and you know what what happens if you start to see that speck of dirt as the image of God? What if you treat Every blade of grass, not as an object to be utilized for your own good, but a fellow subject in the story of the world. And to understand, like, Wendell Berry has a quote where he says, if, if you destroy soil, you do so at your own peril. It's not just respect for the divine creation. It's also like, we're dependent on this. And our salvation is going to be tied up in it. We should work together. Uh, second, the the process begins now. And this is what Wesley was saying, um, is, is we begin acting in anticipation of where the story is going. Um, and so the work that we do, our lives, they're like signposts that point to the restoration that is to be finalized. Um, so I think, I think that's important. Um, what this does mean is that everything we do, everything has a a moral dimension to it and everything we do has an ethical role in the kind of world that we're creating and i think that's important finally the hardest one when we're talking about easter and salvation if this is true this means that it's not primarily about you like are you able to see how far this goes it includes you, but it's not primarily about you. This is about all of creation, of which you are a part. So does, does resurrection have something to say? Does renewal of creation have something to say to your broken heart? Yes. All things. Does it have something to say to your past? Yes. To your relationships? Yes. To the unraveling of communities? Yes. Does it have something to say to poverty and racism and violence? Yeah. All things. All things. All things. Does it have something to say to governments and systems and structures? Absolutely. Does it have something to say to every cell that exists within the cosmos? Yes. All things, including you. We're all part of this story. And we all have a responsibility for where it is going to go. So I will end with this image. I think it's powerful. How would you live if you were exactly what was needed to heal the world? Because you are. How would you live if you were exactly what was needed to heal the world? Because you are. All right. That's all I got. How many people did we lose during that time? Um, I, so I can't see any of you while I'm doing that because I have the, uh, the, the slides up over all of your wonderful faces. Um, so at this point, um, grace and peace for anybody who needs to get going. But I would love to have conversation on um, were there any questions that came up while we were going something you want to go back to something you want more elaboration on um, or what do you how do you see this affecting your life? Um, what do we do with this so anybody who wants to uh, anybody have anything you can you, you can use the chat there's a option you have if you click on the participant buttons to raise your hand virtually and I'll see a little thing um, that tells me that you're trying to talk. What do y'all got? All right, Amy has a question. Go ahead, Amy.
1: Well, It's, it's more of a comment that's kind of interesting. Uh, when Lamech, uh, who was Noah's father, when Noah is born, he said, this is the person who will give us relief from our toil. Well, it's almost like he's kind of, uh, you know, saying that this is the person who will save us. Which I thought was interesting.
0: Do
1: hmm. you have anything to say on that?
0: Yeah, uh, Lamech. Yeah. yeah yeah um fun to talk about <laughs>
1: okay <laughs> i thought there was a kind of a connection there that maybe you
0: know, people writing about
1: jesus they were going yeah. back to that as, as you know another
0: yeah i mean you have to see the flood as an act of salvation and remember that at the end of it adonai says yeah i won't do it that way again um but it's an act of salvation all of creation is saved by its uncreation and then recreation. Right? And Noah is the, the figure of that. But also keep in mind, Genesis chapter 9, right? 9 verse 1, they get that blessing. And then Noah goes on almost immediately after to mess it all. So it becomes very obvious that that, that didn't solve the issue, that the process is still unfolding. All right. Who else has something for us?
2: I have a, I don't know if it's a question or just a statement, but um, since I was reading all this uh, for discipleship, I found it interesting that you, you, you know, talked about the dove being a representation of God's spirit. Um, but it also, when I was reading, uh, that verse about it saying that the, you know, the ark, um, floated above uh, on the waters that kind of made me think of that same spot in Genesis and creation that like the ark itself floating above the waters made me think of the spirit of God hovering over the waters.
0: The, the dove connection came later. That's not actually... You can maybe read that into Genesis, but that came later. Um, Yeah, no, I like that image of it's actually Noah and these creatures and Noah's progeny of who's going to continue the blessing of the world that's hovering over the waters in Genesis 6 and 7. Mary, did you raise your hand?
1: Yeah, I just was wondering in that same... When Noah, before Noah sent out the dove he had sent out the raven and it flew and flew until the earth was right up what's the significance of that
0: uh, you know, the,
1: is there something
0: there it is and the exact connection is escaping me right now um, but there was a significance of both of those birds I'd have to look Mary um, I have some notes that might have my, um you know, I'm getting old, and I have gray hair, and uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, and no, you're not.
0: <laughs> often, no, it, it's it's been a while since I interacted with that question. I will yeah. be happy to look, but I do not know off the top of my head. The dove takes on way more prominence in history. I mean, think right. you know, of the dove and the olive branch, and um, mm-hmm. but there is so. Yes, there is significance to the birds. I couldn't tell you exactly what it is offhand, but that's definitely something worth exploring more. Does
1: the term tohu-vavohu come up explicitly anywhere in the book, or is it just
0: an implicit? Amy asked if tohu-vavohu comes up explicitly in Hebrew in Genesis 6-9 through 9 and it does not um, that is, But the image of the water covering is the same one where it's brought up back in Genesis 1. The, the one thing that I wanted to bring up in, in light of all of this is actually what we did for um, Kids Church this morning, where we talked about the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. And, uh, you know, I, I think they got it. I think they, uh, they were all pretty clear on what that was by the time we were done. Um, but one of the issues that I see within, um, world history and how should resurrection interact with it is the problem of entropy of which we don't have a solution for. And the problem of entropy is basically that all matter, uh, matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. It only changes form, but it will change form into something that is less usable. And so with the kids, I burnt a piece of paper and showed all of the paper is still there just in a form, except we can't write on it now. That's entropy. And uh, the problem of entropy is a real one. And unless we do something about entropy, the, the world will end in solar heat death. Uh, and I find it interesting to connect then, does... Resurrection, through the lens of the renewal of creation, is it actually an answer to entropy? And we don't have to answer that right now, but um, that's something that that occupies a lot of my mind, especially because everything we do causes entropy, right? Like, you're going to eat today, you're going to take things uh, in a usable form and make them less usable. Um, Us building this barn contributed a lot of entropy to the world. And so I'm not saying like all of those things are bad and you should never do entropy. You're going to, but to be able to see that's a compromise. That's not, that's not the, the end goal of all of this. That's not the telos. And then how does resurrection and God's renewal of creation fit into what John Wesley said of we should begin living our lives in anticipation of that restored creation. So does it have anything to say to entropy? So those are my Additional thoughts on, on this nobody's using the chat today. Come on. Oh and then I get a really long chat message. Uh, so this is from Trisha. I have felt deep in my being ever since I was a little girl that all of creation is important for our lives and to continue living. I'm feeling very sad that in the over two thousand years that Christians who have been studying this, especially Western christianity has participated in and or allowed the destruction of so much of creation, as you said about the soil and our own peril. Um, yeah, I, that, it's not everybody in church history. You know, early church was very aware of this, but you also have to think too, none of this was really a problem until industrialization um, because most people were pretty agrarian and pretty creation minded just because that's what it was. Life was also way harder. Um, and the amount of comfort and luxury we have is because we stopped caring so much about creation. You know, so we we have to we have to mix those two things. What what I would say in light of this is we have to we have to find the voices within church history that were doing what we would say is right. John Wesley's one of them. That's one of the reasons that I think Methodism has um, an edge in the world today is because they have really strong roots of how how to interact with creation and not just as like a cool side project, but like as an act of faith and part of uh, the identity of being a Christian. But read more Wendell Berry and it'll make you more depressed.
1: Wasn't Leslie kind of pushing back against an idea that was coming up at the time? Um, I want to go like where the idea of going to heaven became more of the thing you said already yeah. or a personal salvation as opposed to creation salvation
0: yeah so personal salvation which is mostly dominant in, in mainstream Christianity in America um, that didn't really start until about 1100 and by the enlightenment and industrialization that became the norm uh, there's a lot of reasons why but John Wesley was one who argued for cosmic salvation, which is what we just talked about, right? Um, the renewal of creation, that's called cosmic salvation. He was one who argued for that, but he did it in a way where he said, but it includes the person. It's all of it, all things, right? So what, what I just did that last segment, um, that was a lot of stealing from Wesley. Um, and, and, and I think we lost that a little bit in the 1800s. Uh, especially in America, um, again, there's reasons why that I, I think are plausible, but you're seeing it come back now um, amongst different denominations, and Methodism throughout its history has been one that's always pushed for this, so um, I do think that there's a good heritage there.
1: Yeah, because that's the kind of, you know, when we talk about, like Trisha's talking about, um, Sometimes Christian Christianity, let's say, not individuals. I don't talk about people, but don't don't have that feeling of needing to care for the earth because they don't think they're going to stay here. Yeah, and I think that that's a big part of that. And, and if we can get that mindset, yeah,
0: you know, and that's where I, that mindset
1: a little bit. That's
0: where I say, all of that content we just did. That's not to try to argue for the rationale on why we should care for creation. Um, I think it's going to help inform us how. Uh, how, how we do it, and help give us, like, inspiration for why it's important. Um, so, yeah, if we can go, hey, God takes up residence in the blades of grass. Well, that should change how you interact with grass, right? Um, and, or I do think that's an important one. If we say that the ultimate trajectory that God has for the world is a restored earth here, Well, then we might want to be careful with how we use it, right? If um, disembodied evacuation to some other place, like beam me up, Scotty. We're going to go out there. Um, Now it is likely that you're not going to care as much about the, the things that are here. But So that's where, pull back the memory of some of those old hymns, right? All creatures of our God and King. All creatures are part of it. Um, for the beauty of the earth. Uh, like that, that one especially as a, as a mission statement for the church. Um, that, those should be the kind of things that help influence how we behave um, with creation.
1: Sure, because we want to be preparing to live yeah. in a system like that rather than, yeah. you know.
0: And, and if you take that component out now, because kind of... this is how we define evangelism is we say evangelism is making God's world real in the place, right? That's, that's the message. Jesus evangelizes to people all the time without, like, uh, getting them to confess something or anything like that, and it's still evangelism. If you take out the role of creation and the renewal of creation and cosmic salvation, now evangelism, evangelism has to be, I got to get this person to believe the right things and say the prayer so that they can get beamed up like Scotty too. You know, uh, if, if cosmic salvation is a thing, now evangelism is a lot bigger. Bigger. It deals with that person, and it deals with that person experiencing grace. But it also exp- it's, it's experiencing grace so that we can all help make this thing the way God has intended and, and that God started and launched in Jesus' death and resurrection, and we're supposed to be continuing. It's Paul.
1: All creation is groaning waiting for us to, to, you know. Yeah, there's... I can't remember the whole scripture, but that's mm-hmm.
0: what it talks about. All right, somebody besides me or Amy talk. <laughs> okay. yeah. was, was there any questions, concerns? Um, I try to say this every week, but um, what I just said was my opinion, and you are, it is very fair to disagree with me, though i I would say, you know, give plausible arguments and, Um, I'd even be willing to change my mind if you can, if you can convince me that was my opinion though. So you don't have to take that as absolute authority. You're allowed to disagree with me. Um, so was there any disagreements? Was there any, uh, questions that you want me to clarify? And then, you know, what does this mean for you? Does this, does this idea drive you? Um, does this impact how you live, how you eat, how you buy stuff? Um, And I think it's important to go like, none of us, none of us are doing it right. Some of us are a little bit closer to that fullness. But all of us, this doesn't define any of us right now. And that's fine. Will it continue to define us more tomorrow and the next day and the day after that? We have to keep moving. That's our invitation. That's sanctifying grace. Another Wesleyan uh, interpolation there. So any any thoughts, any questions, disagreements, um, words of wisdom? I'm so concerned for the generations to come and how and if they are able to restore creation. Yes, it begins with us, but I'm starting to believe that God will have to come and do it if they are going to survive. I think you just uh, became... um, what's called a millennialist (laughs) waiting for the second coming. (laughs) Um, Christy said, I recently watched a documentary called what the health nice changed me goes along with the things we are talking about. Absolutely. Um, And this is why when, when we kind of reformatted the church and became the farmhouse, It was necessary if I was going to stay here that we would include this vision of health. Um, So when you hear our, our statement, we exist to foster the health of this place, you can take health there and substitute it for cosmic salvation if you want. Because I understand those things to be the same. And so you as an individual, your relationships, your family, your neighbors, our community, our society, our economy, our ecology, all of it is included in that. So, and that's overwhelming, but, you know, and I, I'm not, a, I've not seen that documentary, Christy, but the invitation's like, all right, so where can you start? Start somewhere. What's the next right thing to do here? Do it. How can you pursue a little bit more health, more of that cosmic salvation here and now uh, today? Um, yeah, and, uh, so Trisha just said, taking an online course called Food Revolution, it too is saying these things. And, and like I said, this isn't uh, a way of thinking that is only in the Bible. Like this is a human issue. And therefore the Bible has a lot to say about it. Um, I do think food's the most important one uh, because you eat every day. And uh, eating is an agricultural act. And I also think it's the most neglected thing that we do in our culture. Um, you know, I, I, we've, we've had people critique us as a church. Like, why do you do the co-op? Um, why, why are you doing groceries right now? Um, because Jesus launched the renewal of creation and cosmic salvation, and we should begin living now uh, in anticipation of the future restoration and, like, all things in health and so for me, it makes sense that a church would have interactions with food. The reason we cook the way we do at Farmhouse Sabbath is because we believe that food, uh, food is important in this process. And, and listen, I here, everybody listen. I ate a Krispy Kreme donut yesterday, okay? I am not uh, doing this the way that I should. And I acknowledge that, but I'm trying. And every day, I hope I get a little bit better. That Krispy Kreme donut was unbelievably good, but I'm glad I made some of you laugh. That's that's good. Any other thoughts? Anybody got anything? Um, I don't have Uh Amanda Tuttle, I'm going to call you out. You specifically requested a, an explanation connecting Noah and the flood to Easter and resurrection so what are your thoughts how are you thinking about this now
2: thank you (laughs) um i mean i I feel like everything you talked about today really um answered all of my questions just from my reading this past week um i think i sort of saw it a little bit that like having been been studying Genesis, just that um, whole story kind of coming together. Um, but yeah, just, I guess, you know, the idea that obviously the whole world died and then we started over. And to me, that is resurrection. So mm. I wanted to hear kind of your insights on how those things correlate. And I feel like you definitely helped me understand it better today. So,
0: You know, the, the, the death brings a certain life, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, I like that. And you see that same pattern in Exodus. Um, and then, you know, what Trisha had brought up about, like, how are we going to do this? Well, it's probably going to result uh, require some death. And, not, and I, by that, I don't mean the end of life for specific people. I mean, a death to a way of life. Um, a death to a culture, a death to societal norms, that may be a problem. Um, And the church is responsible to embody that death and overcome it. So I, I really like that connection you're making there. Anybody else have anything? I miss you all. I cannot wait to be in the room again because right now I would be in that beautiful kitchen that we finally finished and got to use like twice before this happened. And I want to cook you food and this would be the perfect Sunday conversation to everybody gets up and we walk over there and we eat food in a beautiful way. Um, And so do me all, do me a favor, everyone. And, uh, Go eat some beautiful food today and celebrate what we're a part of. Um, I also do hope that this idea of cosmic salvation, everybody say hi to Matt Sager over there in the mask. Matt's here doing some of this stuff for us. Um, But I do hope that this idea of cosmic salvation and the renewal of creation, that this is part of our DNA here, that we can have these conversations and that it influences the decisions we make and how we act and uh, the, the direction that we keep going and trying to take our community. Um, you know, I said it said it back when we uh, first got in the barn. Um, you know, I hope one day people are driving to Metamora, Ohio, to go. What did you guys do? How, how did you make this happen? Um, because we're just so dead set on a vision that it can't help but have effects on the world. Like that's, uh, to, to maybe answer my mom's question, which, um, I'll, I'll be a little bit transparent. Uh, I, I literally had to hug trees when I was a kid because of her, uh, not, not necessarily in like the green hippie way, but there there was this tree on this path we would walk that looked like it was giving you a hug. Um, no, so I was kind of raised with this in my, my, my dna um but i don't even remember what i was going to say now
1: what was i talking about i don't know because i got distracted to with I the tree conversation about tree hugging the tree hugger. um about our vision here oh
0: yeah i i guess i guess that it's it's just important to me that oh that's what i was going to say about my mom is, you know, how how is this going to happen? And this is what Wendell Berry talks about, where it's going to take one community doing the right thing at a time. And if our community can be an inspiration to other communities, great. First, we have to figure this out in our community, right? So, um, yeah, if uh, co- the idea of cosmic, uh, cosmic salvation is a little tricky for you, um, get a hold of me, send me an email. Uh, send me your thoughts or questions um, because it's fair that it's tricky because there's a lot of different voices on this thing. Um, And I won't try to like convince you of anything, but I do think it's worth reading the Bible through that lens. Um, Or if you have any other thoughts or conversations, let me know. Um, If anybody has any ideas for what you want to do next week, um, I have a couple in my back pocket, but, Again, I I want to have conversations during this time that I know will be beneficial for at least one of you, um, if not not multiple of you. So if you have something you want to follow or talk about, uh, shoot, you're the second person to say Revelation. Do we really have to do that? Does anybody else want to skip over that? Who wants to do Revelation? Okay, just, just one of you. Okay, then that's not enough for, that's not a majority. I need a majority. Uh, two, two is not a majority. I'm going to need at least 100 people to say they're in and then I'll do it. No, I'll think about that. Um, I'll, I would have to be able to think of a way to connect it with why, why it's other than just deconstructing or exegetics on that book. Um, which I would enjoy doing but don't give me that pleasure mm-hmm. um, alright well let me know if you all have anything I am going to go do some grocery work with Matt now and get all that going if you ordered something you still gotta come pick it up come and get it um if you didn't order anything and you still want to come and get it uh just call Matt and tell him what you want um But otherwise, grace and peace be with all of you. It was so good to see you. Um, I hope to see you again next Sunday.